So we're in Judges chapter 10 this morning. Um, We're going to continue verse by verse here in Judges, and today we'll cover, as I said, chapter 10. And chapter 10 is one of the shorter chapters in Judges and is the shortest chapter so far that we've covered. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm just going to read the first five verses here. And then we'll begin the sermon. It says, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shemur, in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel twenty-three years, and he died and was buried in Shemur. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel twenty-two years. Now he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys. Every culture has its own ideas of what is prestigious. (laughs) Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is Repentance and the Fruit of Repentance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your scriptures, and I ask that you would use it for good in the hearts and minds of all the hearers. Lord, help us to understand your ways and your thoughts better, that we might be more useful tools in your hands here in the earth with the time you've allotted us. Be glorified here, I pray, O Lord, in the preaching of your word. Use it for good in your saints. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. In these uh, first five verses, we learn about two judges named Tola and Jair, and it covers about a 45-year period after the Gideon era. And we know virtually nothing about them but what the Scripture does say here about them, which is precious little, (laughs) as you noticed. So it says in verse 6, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. This is the most extensive list of Israel's sins given after the refrain. Once again, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Most extensive list of Israel's sins and evil in the entire book of Judges. Usually just, and again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, suffices, but here we see a list of nine things laid out of the evil they were involved in, which was massive idolatry and rejection of the Lord. Notice here that when the children of Israel rejected the Lord, they forsook him, that they replaced him with something else. They replaced him with these other gods. And this is an important point. When people reject the Lord, they will always replace him with someone or something. When people reject the Lord, they will always replace him with someone or something. Religion is inescapable. When men reject the Lord, they replace him with someone or something. In our case here in America, many Americans replace him with the state and the pursuit of materialism. With the state and or hedonism. This becomes the God of Americans. Material wealth, the state. Verse 7 goes on and states, So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Due to their rebellion against him, the Lord brings his judgment upon them. They are brought under oppressors. And verses 8 and 9 say, From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who are on the other side of the Jordan, small two groups on the other side of the Jordan, in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim. 
so that Israel was severely distressed. Severely distressed. So this oppression went on for 18 years. 18 years. Which brings to mind the fact that it often takes time to get people's attention. It often takes the Lord time to get their attention. He can bring his judgment. They might have a little inkling of, ooh, maybe I'll go to church for the next four weeks, right? And then they go back to what they were. It takes time. 18 years under this oppression. So the judgment of the Lord often lasts for a while and wanes and increases over the years. When the oppression increases, the interest in the Lord increases. And when the oppression wanes, the interest in the Lord lessens. And I have watched this in America during my lifetime. There was no true repentance during this 18 years in Israel, and there has been no true repentance in America in the last 40 years of my lifetime. We have seen inklings of repentance here and there, but not true repentance. Not true repentance. But finally, it reached ahead in Israel, and it will reach ahead here in America too. The question is how severe will the judgment have to be before true repentance takes place? That's the question. Understand the judgment of God is a mercy from Him to man, it gets our attention. Judgment is a good thing. It brings us face to face with the consequences of rebelling against our Creator. It shows us our need for repentance. His judgment is a goodness. It shows us our need for repentance, and that's what we see here. Look at verse 10. And the children of Israel, after 18 years, cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. Here we see the judgment of God produces repentance. They cry out and they acknowledge their sin. Praise the Lord. Now let me digress here. I want to talk to you a little bit about repentance. I want to define it for you and talk about some aspects of it with you. Repentance is central to the gospel message. Repentance is central to the gospel message. God calls upon all men to repent. When Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 30, he states that God, quote, commands all men everywhere to repent, unquote. Repentance is central to the gospel message. In Mark 1.14, it says that Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And in verse 15, Mark quotes Jesus saying, quote, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Unquote. Repentance is central to the gospel message. Look at Luke chapter 13. Turn there in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, or scroll there on your device, whichever your case may be. Luke 13, it says, There were present at that season some who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18, on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is central to the gospel message. That's the first thing I want you to know. And though modern-day Christianity wants to remove repentance from the gospel message, nevertheless, repentance is central to the gospel message. I remember years back, some advertising company was hired by a bunch of evangelical bigwigs. They spent $500,000 on how to figure out how to best present the gospel message. They wanted to put up billboards that said, Repent and Believe, 
repent and believe in a gospel passage, but they found through the consensus groups that they had formed that repentance had a negative connotation, and they only wanted to give a positive presentation of the gospel. And they spent many months, six months, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and came to the conclusion there was no word that was positive to replace repent with. So they just went with believe. Though American Christianity wants to remove repentance from the gospel message, it is central to the gospel message. What is repentance? What does it mean to repent? The Greek word used has the denotation of to make a change of principle and practice, a change of mode and of thought, to turn around or turn from. That is the denotation. It carries with it the biblical connotation that we must be willing to give up all our ways and all our thinking and willing to submit ourselves to all of God's ways and all of God's thinking as revealed in Scripture. To give up all our motivations, all our desires, all our character, everything that is unlike Him in our lives. That's repentance. That's what it means to repent. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8, 29, quote, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Amen? That's repentance. And understand, repentance is not a once-in-a-lifetime event. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. The book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. And look what the scripture says there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Paul is comparing the old covenant to the new. And he says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord." We are becoming Christ-like in our character throughout our life. We go from glory to glory throughout our life. In other words, when we're first saved, you know, we can only see so much of our life that is really unlike him. But as we continue in his word and in his ways, we see other areas of our life that have not been submitted to him. And so we have to repent of them. And then as we continue on, we see another layer. We go from glory to glory, as it says here, being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Glory is talking about character, the character of the Lord. We become more Christ-like. It's like standing on the edge of the beach down here in downtown Milwaukee area and looking out at Lake Michigan. You can only see water to the horizon, right? So it's like traveling out to that point where you could see in a boat, making it there, and then looking out and seeing more. And you move to the next spot. And it's really like an ocean, because you can get across the Michigan, Lake Michigan. Yeah, it's more like an ocean. <laughs> it's like you go from glory to glory. You see what's unlike Christ. You continue to walk with him. You reach that point. You make that part of your life, part of your character. Amen? And it's a lifetime process because we're people. <laughs> we're people. <laughs> so, repentance is not a once-in-a-lifetime event. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, quote, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Unquote. Amen? Repentance is not a once-in-a-lifetime event. Something that takes place in the life of a believer again and again and again. And listen to me now. And this is important. Listen to me now. This is important. The extent to which we repent will determine the extent to which his kingdom is formed in our lives. 
The extent to which we repent will determine the extent to which his kingdom is formed in our lives. The extent to which he rules our lives. The extent to which we repent will determine the extent to which his kingdom is formed in our lives and rules our lives. Repentance involves allowing God to govern our lives. Note that. Repentance involves allowing God to govern our lives. Allowing God to rule our lives. We must submit ourselves to his law, to his word, and to his gospel. As Jesus said, quote, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Unquote. We are to be governed by God. And there's three elements in our being governed by God. One is simply our willingness to submit to God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the agent who enables us to live in obedience to God. You cannot live for God without God. You can't. His Spirit resides within us. He is the vine. We are the branches. That's why the scriptures say that we do what we do as Christian people by, with, in, and through Jesus. Amen? It's a prepositional faith. We are utterly dependent upon him for living in obedience to him. And number three, when it comes to the third element of being governed by God, is that God uses his law and word to legislate to us how we are to be governed. He uses his law and word to legislate to us how we are to be governed. His law and word is objective truth. They reveal his character, his thinking, his ways. Amen. I've met some people, you know, well, the Spirit just shows me what's right and what's wrong. And there's been some really messed up stuff that the Spirit has shown some people, you know, during my 40 years plus of Christianity. No, we need objective truth. His word is objective truth. His law and word legislates to us how we are to be governed. So we are defining and speaking of true repentance here. Not some catharsis that pawns itself off as repentance and quote-unquote revival. And this appears to have been the case with the Israelites here as the narrative goes on. They seem to have embraced true repentance. And why do I think this? Because as we continue on in this narrative, we see something. We see fruits of repentance. That's why I think True repentance is taking place here. True repentance translates into true outward action. It's not just all this little cosmic stuff going on inside your little narcissistic world. Correct? Look at verses 11 through 14. Go back to Judges. Judges chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, it says, So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Now remember, they've cried out. They're acknowledging their sin. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Malachites and Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Those are chilling words. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. And then he says in verse 14, the Lord says, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. This is what we call an anthropomorphism. The Lord is using human emotions to communicate his displeasure with their sin and rebellion, as well as their phoniness, unfaithfulness, and repeated idolatry. Using human emotions. 
to communicate his displeasure with it all, of what they've done, what they've been. The Lord is going to allow the judgment to continue. And the question is, will they serve him even while the judgment continues? Will they display faithfulness to him, true repentance? Only time will tell. And the Lord allows the judgment to continue to see. Will they live faithful to him in the midst of it? And what do we see? Look at verse 15. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. What do we see? We see fruits of repentance, a change in behavior. Amen. Modern-day Christianity, the Christianity of the West, views repentance as all inward. It is very narcissistic, all inward, focused on self, cosmic. But true repentance is not just inward. It is seen in the outward. It is seen in outward actions. These are fruits of repentance, a change of behavior. Repentance is not just wailing and crying and making promises in a church building or prayer service. It is not just some catharsis. That isn't what repentance is. True repentance brings forth fruit, evident change of action, evident change of thinking, a change in one's previous usual course. A change in one's previous usual course. Remember the definition? To make a change of principle and practice. A change of mode. To turn around or turn from. Look at what Paul says in Acts chapter 26. Turn there. The book of Acts chapter 26. And we're going to begin in verse 15. The book of Acts... 26, starting in verse 15, Paul is reiterating to King Agrippa the story of his conversion. He says in verse 15, So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 16, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, this is Paul now speaking after quoting Christ, speaking to him. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Amen? True repentance always results in fruits of repentance. A change of thinking, a change of character, a change of behavior. Always. Amen? Look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Remember Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Remember John the Baptist, what he said to those who came out to see what he was all about? It says in verse 7 of Matthew 3, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he obviously had not read Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. He's totally messing up the evangelical paradigm for evangelism here. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says in verse 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Amen. 
True repentance results in an outward change in someone's life. It results in different thinking, different character, different behavior, different actions. Amen. In Philippians 1.11, you can mark it in your notes, Paul says we are, quote, filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Here's a concrete story of the fruits of repentance in a man's life who comes into contact with our Lord, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. No one in America names their kid Zacchaeus for some reason. But here we have a guy named Zacchaeus, and he's about to have a remarkable change in his life. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he, was he Jesus, was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. The Lord knew he was up there, looks up at him, calls him out by name and tells him he's going to go dine at his place, right? So Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And look at Christ's response. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Notice when he met Jesus, his repentance resulted in outward change of behavior, outward actions. I give half of my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I can assure you he did. He's going to give back fourfold. Amen? True repentance. I remember after I came to Christ, I didn't know a lot of people I had robbed, but I did know some of them, and I went back to every house that I could, every store that I could, repented before them, and told them I would make it right monetarily for what I did. You talk about opportunity to talk to people about Jesus Christ? Massive, massive stuff. And I tell you many stories about that. We are to have fruits worthy of repentance. Fruits worthy of repentance are seen, they're evident, when true repentance takes place. And here we see the Israelites showing fruits of repentance. Go back to Judges, chapter 10, our text. Judges, chapter 10. Here we see fruits of repentance, verse 15. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Amen? Just like Nineveh was told God's judgment was sure, and they still repented, so here, though the Israelites were told God would never deliver them again, they still repented. And they showed fruits of repentance. They put away their false gods and served the Lord. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, we must see repentance in America. We must see repentance in America. And notice when God sees that kind of repentance, what happens? Regardless of what may happen in the days ahead, we must repent. We must see repentance. We must call men and the governments of men to repentance. Amen? And live true to the Lord. And in the midst of that, look what happens. The end of verse 16. And his soul, talking about God, his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. We don't know how long 
they continued faithful to him under that judgment. But at some point, God was said, there's been a change. <laughs> There's been true repentance. It grieves me to see this people oppressed any longer. And so at this point, he begins the action of delivering them from the oppressors. And remember, this is always the first part, right? His judgment is always the first part. Always. When men are in rebellion to him, when nations spit in his Face and upon his law and word, repentance must come first. Judgment brings repentance. God is going to deliver his people. Think of that. After he said, I'll never deliver you again, God is going to deliver his people. That should make us weep. That should make our hearts break when we think of the goodness of our Lord, his mercy his graciousness that we sang about today. Think how perverse our nation is. Think of our own lives. Think of those around us. And yet in the midst of it all, God shows his mercy, his graciousness. Amen? He's going to deliver these people because they've turned and they've beseeched him and they've shown it by the fruit that is in their lives. We should weep because we hear we see a merciful God, and when you see your sins for what they are, you know just how great his mercy is. And when you see the sins of this nation, the degradation and evil of this nation, spitting in his face with their evil laws, policies, and court opinions, we must weep, and we must repent. And long for repentance. And call all men and all governments of men in our nation to repent. And then look what it says in our narrative. Verses 17 and 18. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Who will, who will lead the fight, right? Who will start the fight? That's what it says. And who will lead? There are tyrants on the land, and they are to be defeated. Getting right with the Lord comes first, amen? Amen. Remember how I ended last week's sermon? I quoted John of Salisbury from his magnum opus, Polycraticus. He said this, quote, For tyrants are demanded, introduced, and raised to power by sin and are excluded, blotted out, and destroyed by repentance. Amen. And it's absolutely true. And that's why the tyrants are here in America, thriving. Because of our sins, they are thriving. We finished the book of Genesis in family worship at our home this past week, and we started a new book, the Book of Lamentations. One of those books that most people hardly ever read. You know, I've met people before. I've read every book in the Bible, oh, but Lamentations. <laughs> it's like Lamentations. Lamentations is an awesome, interesting book. Turn with me there to chapter 1 of the book of Lamentations. It's right after Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And notice verse 5 of chapter 1. Jerusalem has been in rebellion to God. Judah has been in rebellion to God. And it says, her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Amen. Because of her sins, the tyrants were there. And that's why they're here in America. 
There are tyrants in America because of our sin. Sin is the strength of tyrants. And the wicked leftists and Democrats love the sin. And the conservatives and Republicans like to point to everything but the sin. And this matter of repentance and the fruit of repentance comes to bear here. If you are indifferent to the evil that is in the land, repent and show fruits of repentance. And we have a Christianity in America that prides itself on its indifference to the evil in the land under the false notion of love. A form of love, divorce. Divorced from the word of God. If you divorce the virtue of love from the word of God, it's just some sentimental hogwash, romantic garbage. It's something less than what true love is. And that's what the church in America and throughout the West has been peddling for decades now, and we're reaping the whirlwind for it. This past week, I listened to the conservatives and Republicans talk about how they're going to take back Congress and the Senate in the midterms. And everything, as usual, was focused on D.C., in our great free nation, blah, blah, blah. No repentance, no sackcloth and ashes, no crying out to God. The same course of action they've been taking for decades. And all their focus had nothing to do with our nation's great problem, the problem of sin, and the problem of making sin law and public policy, and issued court opinions. Nothing about that. And that should make us weep. It should break our hearts. It's this bad now and they still don't get it? His judgment must grow in its fierceness to get the attention of those in rebellion against him. Nothing about the slaughter of the preborn. Nothing about the filth of sodomy and its legion of subsequent perversions, nothing about the unbiblical money system in America, nothing about the evil in our education system destroying and enslaving the young, nothing about how we have made the state God, it is the idolatry of our day, nothing about any of that. No crying out before the Lord, no call to repentance, no run on sackcloth and ashes down at the Ace Hardware, just business as usual. And it's all a great crime. It's all a great heartbreak and grief. The churchman Robert Dabney, who was Stonewall Jackson's personal chaplain, said the following about conservatives back in 1897. This has been going on for a long time. Here's what he said, and he said much more. I hope you read it all. But I'm only reading a portion. Quote, this is a party which never conserves anything. At this point, when there's evil in the land, what actually are they conserving, right? Here in America. Oh, that's right, they're conserving evil. This Equality Act that the Dems are about to pass, you think the Republicans, if they retake power, will rescind any of that? Will just take it and go, that's all removed? I've watched it for decades now. The Democrats move the ball down the field. The Republicans kick it through the goalposts. The Democrats do the evil, and the Republicans come and sustain it. Here's what Dabney said. This is a party which never conserves anything. Its history has been that it demurs to each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable amount of growling, but always acquiesces at last, in the innovation. What was the resisted novelty of yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. It is now conservative only in affecting to resist the next innovation, which will tomorrow be forced upon its timidity and will be succeeded by some third revolution to be denounced and then adopted in its turn, unquote. Dabney, 1897. I've watched this in my lifetime. Just regarding sodomy, I re I'm old enough to remember when all the conservatives, oh, we got to stop legalization of sodomy. It was a big deal. And they would get votes for it because they would speak against sodomy. 
and all the talking heads, conservative talking heads, oh, just sodomy. Stop sodomy from being legalized. Guess what? Our government legalized sodomy through raw judicial fiat. They legalized it by an action of the Supreme Court, which should be resisted, opposed, and spat upon, but they all go along with. Scum that they are. So then they let that now be okay. And they had their latest innovation, which was sodomite marriage. Oh, we can't allow marriage to be trounced by, you know, we can't have two men and two women marrying. And they got votes for it. And all the conservative talking heads would all talk about it. And then guess what happened? Through raw judicial power, the Supreme Court tells everybody, obey us. Two men and two women can marry. And like the scum that they are, they all obey it. And they move on to the next innovation, transgenderism. So now they're okay with homosexual marriage. Most conservatives are. They're okay with sodomy. They are. How do I know? I talk to them. That's why I say I'm not a conservative. I'm a biblical centrist. What does the Bible have to say? That's what matters. Scripture should inform our politics. That's what's important. So now here we have transgenderism, and you can already see it all folding. They're becoming okay with that. When the Equality Act's done and the Supreme Court's done and all that kind of stuff, they'll look for the next innovation in order to get votes and to talk about, make a stand, while the whole country goes... And then they'll go to the next innovation, which will be transhumanism. That's next coming up. You do realize that. And we've already perverted everything else about God's created order. Sodomy's okay. Two men and two women marrying is okay. Men trying to change their sex to women and women trying to change their sex to men. That's okay. It's a small leap to transhumanism. It's coming like a freight train. Do some research. And it's just a small step. And they'll, they'll accommodate themselves to that too. This is why it's important for us to be Christian men and women. We're the only ones holding true to him. The conservatives aren't your friends. The Republicans aren't your friends. There might be some Republicans and conservatives that think like you and are your friends, but as a group, they are not. And your duty is to be faithful to Christ, not to a party, not to a group think. To Christ. And we're the only ones who have the bravery to say what needs to be said because of our love for Christ. But unfortunately, the churchmen in this country have made the Christians into little whores. They're whores, and they've made their people into little whores. So that they don't say what needs to be said, and that should all break our hearts. So the conservatives and Republicans talk about how they're going to take back Congress and the Senate in the midterms, and everything is focused on D.C. This is the hamster wheel to nowhere they want you on. This is the hamster wheel they and the liberals have had Americans on for decades. Always looking to D.C. But there's a change taking place. Men are beginning to realize they must focus on county and local politics. Repentance is taking place. That's what's happening. Men see things are breaking apart, that the federal beast and their sycophants must be resisted. The evil and sin they foment must be stopped. Interposition is needed. They no longer have the convenience of being indifferent towards the unjust and immoral actions of their government. That's what men are realizing, and repentance is taking place. And what's good about it is they're beginning to see D.C. is lost. It is a wasteland, and they understand that the state governments sold out also. And they're focusing on county and local government. That's what they're focusing on. I know. My book sells like crazy on the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And from coast to coast, I've been contacted over the last two months. Everyone 
is focused on county and local politics. They stole the election. They want to foment their evil through the federal beast down through their provinces called states. But what they don't realize is God is using all their evil for his purposes to awaken some people, for people to coalesce, to repent, to do right by him, to make a stand. Interposition by lesser magistrates can stop the evil. It is part of the fruit of repentance. Pastors and churchmen must call their congregations and the men of this nation and the governments of men in this nation to repentance. The indifference of the pulpits and thinking they are so spiritual by ignoring civil government matters has come home to roost. We and our nation are reaping the whirlwind of churchmen and the Christians' indifference. Decades of it. Churchmen and Christians must repent and they must call their congregations and the men of this nation and the governments of men of this nation to repent. We need repentance. And let me encourage you with a great story of God working in the affairs of men fueled by repentance and using Christian men in the realm of civil government. We have seen many sheriffs and county governments defy these lawless governors since this whole COVID thing, which is just two weeks away from its one-year anniversary, started. In May of last year, Governor Pritzker, who is in Illinois, gave his latest decree. Remember back then they had new decrees like every 72 hours? And his latest new decree was any businessman who opens his business in Illinois before I say you can open your business will now be arrested and charged with a misdemeanor crime. And out of all of the counties in Illinois, one lone county called Madison County over on the Mississippi River assembled their board of supervisors together and issued their own decree stating that their businessmen were free to open now and then cautioned the governor in the state if they tried messing with their businessman. Businessmen. They would use all their authority against them. Well, the tyrant, Governor Pritzker, responded in good tyrannical fashion and waxed bold in the media. You can read the articles yourself. We'll take away their federal funding, and we'll slap them around the room. <laughs> and, you know, and he was like, this list of things he was going to do to them. But one week after Madison County issued their decree, the Illinois State Police put out a press release declaring that they would not arrest any businessman in the whole state who opened their business before Governor Pritzker said they could. And the next day after that, Governor Pritzker rescinded his order. Amen? That happened because Christian thought was brought to bear upon the magistrates. I told that story for five months before someone told me they had given my book to the head of the county board there in Madison County, and it lit him on fire. Do you see the importance of Christian thought? Amen? The importance of Christian thought needs to be brought to the magistrates. Repentance, we need to call men and the governments of men to repentance. And the counties, just like when you look at the history of the American Revolution before it all got going, was birthed in the counties. I see God doing a great thing in the counties across America now. Again, what John of Salisbury aptly summarized regarding Holy Scripture, he said, For tyrants are demanded, introduced, and raised to power by sin and are excluded, blotted out, and destroyed by repentance. Repentance of sin is what will remove the tyrants from our land. The best thing we have going to see repentance is the tyrants themselves. I tell everybody that. 
the best thing we got going to see repentance in America is the tyrants themselves. Why? Because God brought them for our good, for repentance in our nation. People will tire of their evil and rule. People will return to the law of God and the rule of his son. You know what the Lord's doing? He's getting our attention. And may he be praised. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. Lord, we give praise and honor unto you. Lord, our hearts do break before you. We are full of weepings within our heart. Oh, God. A nation in rebellion, the evil that's done here. Oh, God. Lord, we just ask and pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant repentance to our nation. And they, we, as your instruments in the earth, would declare the need for repentance to the men of this nation and to the governments of men in this nation, O oh Lord. Lord, I ask and pray that we would not just talk about it in theory, do it. Lord, I thank you for the two county magistrates I met with yesterday. A 20-minute meeting turning into two and a half hours. Lord, I give praise to you that men who fear you and love you are in office. I thank you that they need to hear what your word and law has to say regarding good governance. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us in our homes, in the midst of all this chaos. We thank you, O oh God, that in the midst of all this insanity, we're able to gather here in this room, unmasked, sitting next to each other, shaking hands, hugging, having sweet Christian fellowship with each other, O oh Lord. We thank you for that, O oh God. And we do not take that for granted. Lord, we just ask and pray that your blessing would be upon each home here, that each individual would have a heart hungry for you, and that you would be honored and worshipped in each home this coming week, that the men of this congregation would be, that they would do right, O oh God, in their duty as priests to their home and open your word to their wives and to their children and talk about the things of you. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. And there's so much more we could say, so much more we could petition you over, O oh Lord. Do a work in our hearts and do a work in our minds, I pray. Lord, we look to you to govern our lives. And we thank you that you've preserved your word down through the ages so we can know your ways and your thoughts. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is in us, enabling us to live as your people. May we submit our lives to you, that you might be glorified in the earth. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.